Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the hard way to enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3 on air and live streaming right now on Instagram at LAist Official. Austin Cross with you on this Friday. As always, thank you so much for hanging out this morning. Coming up, we are combining Food Friday with our week-long series on love and with wedding season right around the corner, we are going cake tasting. You and me, bring your fork. Our friends at Sweet Pea Cakery LA have brought in seven. This is like a record for us on Food Friday. Seven cakes for us to try. I hope we get through all of them, but you know that's going to be so great. So stick around for that. But we start with the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. He was Russian President Putin's biggest domestic adversary of the past decade. Here's a clip of Navalny in the 2022 documentary about him titled Navalny, uh, which went on to win the Oscar for Best Documentary Feature. Alexei, if you are arrested and thrown in prison or the unthinkable happens and you're killed, what message do you leave behind to the Russian people? Um, uh, my message for the uh, situation when I'm killed is very simple, not give up. Navalny goes on to say in Russia that the Russian people are not allowed to give up and that if they decide to kill him, that means their efforts are strong and that they have power even though they're being oppressed. He also encourages them to utilize their power, not be inactive because the only thing needed for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. With me to discuss is Daniel Rohr. He directed the award-winning documentary Navalny. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us. Hello. You spent so much time with him for this film. Can you give us a window into what that time looked like, but also how this news is impacting you? Because I am sure it is difficult. I appreciate you having me on. When I found out early this morning um, that Navalny had passed away, that he'd been killed in prison, I was shocked. Um, as you as you heard from the clip you just played, it, it maybe shouldn't have been a surprise. This was something that we were all thinking about as we were making the film. It's something that Navalny, having survived previous assassination attempts, certainly was thinking about. Yet in spite of that, there was something about the news this morning that in, in addition to just leaving me feeling gutted and angry, I was also so surprised. Why Why now? Why in this moment? Um, Navalny was a guy who was charismatic and funny um, and, you know, would want to just sit around, have a beer and talk about politics or filmmaking or whatever he was interested in in that moment. Um, and it really does feel for me that a light has gone out in this world. And I think that this loss will re reverberate. Um, for decades and decades to come. Talking right now with Daniel Rohr. He directed the documentary Navalny, came out in 2022, award-winning documentary. 
Um, I think that you know a lot of people know the name and they know his opposition to Vladimir Putin, but there's so much to the story, and so you shine a big light on all of it in your film. But for those who don't know the full story, what should people know, in your view, about Navalny's background and some of the things that really led up to this point? Well, I think the most important thing to know is what motivated Navalny. Alexei Navalny was someone who had this steadfast commitment to ridding Russia of this necrotic, cancerous regime, this rotting, festering regime that is led by Vladimir Putin. He wanted to usher in what he called the beautiful Russia of the future, a Russia that was democratic, a Russia that was free, that was free of corruption, which is a problem that plagues the country. Um, and he wanted to introduce, reintroduce Russia to this global community uh, in this 21st century. That was the dream he had for his country. And of course, going up against an authoritarian strongman like Vladimir Putin is very tricky work. And the personal danger that, that he took on as a result of his activism um, was immense. He survived assassination attempts in the past. Um, with the most glaring example being the, the assassination attempt in um, 2021, uh, 2020, which was the catalyst right. uh, of our documentary. Yeah. Um, he was a fun guy. Uh, he loved to laugh. Um, he loved to debate. Um, and I know that if he were here right now, he would say, okay, everyone stop crying. We're going to raise a shot, take a shot of vodka, and we're going to move on because the work continues. Take this anger, take this bitterness and disappointment and sadness, and let's channel it into action. As long as this regime continues, we have work to do. And uh, and that's a message that I hope the world hears today. I mean, something that comes out in your documentary, as he says, there was a point when he thought that he had become well-known enough that it would be very difficult to kill him. Then after that well-known assassination attempt, he said, okay, I was very wrong. And when he was asked in that clip that we just played earlier, our senior producer, Matt, points out that it's interesting that, that Navalny's response was, my message when I am killed. Do you get the sense that obviously he knew the danger of the task that he was trying to undertake? Do you think that there was a part of him that had accepted the the high possibility, considering what's happened to other uh, outspoken critics of Vladimir Putin, the, the likelihood that this could very well be the outcome. Well, Navalny was a smart man. He understood the danger that he put himself in, but it's not as if he he had some death wish. This was a guy sure. who loved life. Um, this is a guy who loved his, his family, his daughter, his son, his wife, Yulia. Um, um, this is not the outcome that he, he wanted, and I don't think this is the outcome that he thought would, would happen. Um, he he genuinely believed in 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 sort of the continuity of his mission in his life, and that he would get out of prison, and and he was motivated by that shimmering Russia of the future, that beautiful Russia of the future. Um, but of course, we all understood the danger. He was not naive. He he lived with both eyes wide open, um, and you know, as we grieve and and we sort of pick up the pieces, I I really. Am left with this sense of mission, um, and I know that millions and millions of disillusioned Russians will feel similarly. 
Talking right now with Daniel Rohr. He directed the 2022 uh, Oscar-winning documentary about Navalny. Did you stay in contact with uh, Navalny's team or his family after that documentary? Yes, absolutely. I, I have a, a great love for his family. They're they're absolutely wonderful. Um, his daughter, Yulia, and his wife, Yulia, and his daughter, Dasha, um, both were tearing up the dance floor at my wedding. Um, I love them both dearly, and I am, uh, you know, just gutted um, for them um, and and for the country and for the world. Um, you know, after the Oscars last year, um, two weeks after that, my wife and I got married, and so it was this whirlwind. A couple weeks, Navalny wrote me this really, really wonderful letter, um, which is very special because it's hard for him to get letters out into the world. Uh, and, you know, it's now something that I will cherish forever. Um, but in it, he, he was just uh, had a lot of gratitude for what we were able to create together in spite of the fact that he's never seen the movie. Um, and now I believe the film will take on um, a new meaning um, uh, as people watch it for decades and decades to come. I know that this is about your personal relationship with his family, but have you had a chance to speak with them since hearing the news of his death? Uh, I haven't. Um, I briefly communicated this morning with Christo Grozev, uh, who is uh, one of the uh, lead subjects in the film. He's the the Bell Bellingcat journalist, mm. um, and he he and I were both sort of in shock, processing, you know, that which cannot be processed, which seems so unsurprising yet so shocking. Um, and I think that you know everyone will take a beat and grieve and and then these feelings and these emotions will be transformed into action. You know, Daniel, I so appreciate you making the time to talk today. Just before we let you go, is there anything that you want people to know or remember about this man that you spoke to, your friend, who became your friend, anything that you would want to leave us with? Yeah, I, I think I touched on it a little earlier. I like to think of what Navalny might say if he were here right now. And, you know, he would tell everyone, all right, no crying, chin up, have a shot of vodka, and let's get back to work. You know, that's at that that was his motivation in life, was his mission, and it has never seemed more vital. Um, you know, as we focused on this war in Ukraine, as we focused on the degradation of Russia and its international standing, rampant corruption, um, Navalny's work has never seen more seemed more vital, and and more than that, Putin's regime has never been in greater peril. Um, and I, and you know they. They are weak. The walls are closing in. And I think and I hope that Navalny's murder um, will galvanize support uh, for the opposition, however, whatever shape it takes in the future, um, in the months and years to come. That's Daniel Rohr, director of the 2022 Oscar-winning documentary film Navalny. It is available on the streaming platform Max right now. Daniel, thank you so much for making the time this morning. Thank you. Also with us is Regina Smith, professor of political science at Indiana University and author of Elections, Protest, and Authoritarian Regime Stability, Russia, 2008 to 2020. Professor Smith, thank you so much for making the time. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to talk about Navalny. You know, it's so important to read everybody in on Navalny, because if you follow the headlines, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners do, they've uh, watched the assassination attempt play out. They watched him go abroad before he made the choice to return home. 
Um, and the subsequent imprisonment, his relocation um, to the Arctic Circle. But a lot of this really connects at the beginning, uh, over a decade ago, to his investigations with FBK, which he called the Anti-Corruption Foundation. Can you talk to me a little bit about some of the work that he did, the investigations that he did that really did turn some of the Russian establishment, especially Vladimir Putin, against him? Yeah, so FPK was, uh, like many things Alexei Navalny did, a very innovative approach to understanding corruption. Navalny himself trained as a lawyer, and he bought stock in companies and showed up at corrupt corporate meetings and challenged people on the board, state officials and uh, economic elites, uh, with facts about corruption in their corporations. FBK went on to be sort of a platform to report corruption for ordinary Russians. And it dealt with things from potholes to poor repair of housing and other types of issues. So it was really quite a broad movement. I know that um, this is being reported on Russian media, on uh, Russia Today. I see it has uh, made a headline there. But what kind of information access are people getting, you think, at this point, um, given that he was a figure that the establishment, that Vladimir Putin actively tried to uh, push out of the public eye as much as possible? Uh, how does this information spread in a country where there is so much media control? So there is a lot of media control. The report of his death was announced two minutes after it happened by the prison system. Uh as far as we can tell, right, allegedly. Um, but this is, people are getting information through social media, new media channels. People have VPNs and they use them to check Western sources or sources banned in Russia. And we do know that some of this media is getting through because we're starting to see small protests spring up around oh. Russia, uh, marking Navalny's death. I know there are so many laws that were changed as well since the Ukraine war. I know it had become illegal in Russia to uh, push any sort of narrative that ran contrary to what the military said. I also know that there were some laws implemented that limited who could run uh, as president against Vladimir Putin, which essentially looks like heading into his next election. He doesn't really have any real challengers. How do people... Uh, from what you've seen, find hope at a time like this where it looks as though, you know, now th the main opposition leader is gone. There's a series of laws in place that, that suppress information, the way that information spreads, and who can even try to enter the political system. Do you know where people are finding hope right now in Russia? Um, it's It's a really interesting question, and it's an important one because you're summing up the full range of repression that Russians are feeling right now. In addition to all these new laws, there are many people now being charged under those laws, being charged with treason, as one of uh, Navalny's compatriots has been, Kazimirsa, uh, and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Mm. So there's an incredible amount of fear. People often ask why more Russians aren't protesting war, and is it exactly because of this level of repression? And I think hope is um, 
found uh, to the extent that it is in everyday life and personal pride that often looks like ignoring the terrible conditions of Russia, but uh, such as um, being proud of your work or showing up at your work every day, investing in your personal life. You know, as people continue to process, and you've mentioned some of the demonstrations, which are extremely risky operations in Russia right now, what do you think Alexei Navalny's legacy will be among the Russian people and even within the international community? So Navalny's always been a very interesting figure. People criticize him widely. You can see that on Twitter and Western sources. You can see it in blog posts. He was a flawed human being. But his legacy was twofold, I think. One was a series of tactics or strategies to work within political system in a legal way to sort of contest Putin and to express opposition. So we saw this last month when thousands of people stood online in sub-zero temperatures to sign uh, a registration document for an opposition candidate to run for president. That wasn't successful, but it did show or give visibility to people who are against the war because this was the one candidate who really had articulated anti-war positions. And I just want to say that I think the second legacy of Navalny is a new generation of activists that we see uh, taking incredible risks inside of Russia or as part of the wartime migration outside of Russia to challenge the regime in various ways. So that and in our interviews with these young activists, they all referenced Navalny as the mm. starting point of their own political interest and political engagement. That's Regina Smith, professor of political science at Indiana University and author of Elections, Protest, and Authoritarian Regime Stability, Russia 2008 through 2020. Professor Smith, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us on this day. Thanks for reporting this story. This is Air Talk on a Friday. I'm Austin Cross. When we come back, we are going to dig into five decades of groundbreaking television, ranging from Soul Train to Blackish and beyond. We are talking about Black TV. Stick around. Air Talk is back in 60 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Thank you. 
It's Air Talk on a Friday. I'm Austin Cross. Thanks so much for hanging out this morning. We are on air, LAist 89.3. You know, online, LAist.com, if you want to listen at work and you don't want anybody to know. But we're also live streaming right now on Instagram at LAist Official. That's L-A-I-S-T Official. If you want to get a peek inside the Studio A here at LAist. Okay, so TV shows like Donald Glover's hit series uh, on FX Atlanta or Kenya Barris's ABC Smash Blackish. They're just a couple of the highly popular and successful modern shows about the experiences of black folks, which we see more often today, you know this, than in years past. But even so, shows like them might not be possible if not for pioneers like Diane Carroll, who starred as the title role in the sitcom Julia and in so doing, she became the first black woman to star in a non-stereotypical role in a TV series. In her new book, Black TV, Five Decades of Groundbreaking Television from Soul Train to Blackish and Beyond, author Bethany Butler looks back at half a century of black television from early groundbreakers, just like Carol, uh, to shows that people are still watching today. Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder. Bethany Butler is with me now. Bethany, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you so much for having me. First, something a little bit personal, because I know that I entered the Black TV conversation right about the mid-90s uh, when I was watching Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, uh, you know, having crushes on Tia and Tamara on uh, Sister Sister <laughs> and things like that. At what stage did you enter Black television and get exposed? I was about the same. Um, I really remember the Fresh Prince really fondly. That was like a show that I had to see every week. Um, also, Family Matters. Oh, I was yeah. a huge fan of, yeah, of uh, Sister Sister. So, yeah, I'm an 80s, 90s baby, and and those were my shows. And this was such an educational process for me as I was reading your book because I've certainly watched the shows that happen in my lifetime, but I did not really realize just how many ties there were to the past, both as far as characters, uh, producers, people, um, how far back things went. And then I really started to watch the evolution. And I started uh, with the show that you start with in your book. That's the show Julia from 1968. And it was about a, a single mother, a black woman, uh, played by Diane Carroll, uh, who was a nurse. And for people who watched TV at the time, this was really their first exposure to a middle-class Black woman on TV. Can you talk to me about the importance of this show? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Diane Carroll was such a pioneer in this role um, that, as you said, presented you know a middle-class Black family. It was a single mother and her son, and there was some controversy around that. But I think if we look back at the history of Black television, Julia was really the first show to go into the home of a Black family and kind of show their day-to-day -day lives. And I mean, to um, be, and, oh, sorry, please continue. So, no, I was going to say you had mentioned, you know, just the through lines through so many shows. And I think uh, Julia is a perfect example because that was, um, that was something that Shonda Rhimes had actually called back mm. to on Scandal. Um, and so just a really great example of sort of how those legacies carry on. Right, right. So I actually want to play a clip from the show Julia 
And here's a scene. It's from the second episode of the show, and it is when Diane Carroll, our main character, goes and interviews for a job with the doctor. So you think we should give you employment because you are the widow of a war hero, huh? Certainly not. I think you should hire me because I am a competent RN. I have had four years' experience in surgery, emergency, and psychiatric cases. And I am dedicated to my profession and skilled in it. And what's more, I can handle even the most exacting demands of a mean, gruff, old man with the heartwarming manners of a wounded moose. Okay, now what I got from this Bethany Butler, author of Black TV, I almost felt as though Diane Carroll was making her case to the nation in that scene. Uh, I'm wondering if you've seen this uh, and if you got something similar from it. I think that's a fair assessment. I think that Diane Carroll was really aware of what a big moment this was, not only for television, but for America. And she really understood sort of the big undertaking um, that she was doing with this show. And I'm wondering how Diane Carroll herself felt, if she maybe felt a responsibility to her community as well as she was doing the show. I mean, clearly a lot of pressure on her. Yeah, and I think that's another through line throughout the history of Black TV is that creators and talent um, like Diane Carroll really do, they feel an outsized responsibility to their community. And so even though Diane Carroll was not a writer on Julia, she was the star, she took on a lot more than she might have otherwise because she wanted the dialogue to be authentic. She wanted the character she was playing to represent Black women. Um, and, you know, she she did write about this in her memoir that it was a lot of pressure. And by the time the show ended three seasons later, she was exhausted. Now, I would say, and it sounds exhausting, but com- comparing that show to another show that happened a decade before, Nat King Cole, he had a variety show on NBC, late 50s. But, and this was at the height of his fame, mind you, but he struggled to find a national sponsor. Eventually, the show ended up getting canceled. Then, 10 years later, Julia premieres. She's got three national sponsors. Is this indicative to you at all about kind of the shifts in conversation that had happened in the nation just over the course of 10 years? Yes, absolutely. You know, the Nat King Cole thing was a big moment because, as you said, he was at the height of his fame. He was a very famous entertainer. And the fact that uh, Madison Avenue still couldn't look past that, um, it, was, it was very striking. And I think that, you know, one of the things that helped was there was a lot of attention about civil rights. There were a lot of, there was a lot of news coverage, especially local news coverage about civil rights and race relations and things that were going on. And I think that that definitely helped pave the way uh, to Julia and to getting those those sponsors. So I want to focus on somebody else just to turn the page a little bit, because the next character, Flip Wilson, who um, was an incredible talent who I just had a chance. I just loved. I delighted in uh, getting to rewatch some of his programs. But this is kind of one of those examples of black people helping other black people, because his career was made in large part thanks to Red Fox and an appearance on Johnny Carson in the mid 60s. Can you tell us how that story went down? 
Yes, I love this story so much. So Red Fox was on Johnny Carson in the mid 60s. And at the time, you know, Flip Wilson was known sort of in black communities. He had been on the Chitlin circuit. So a network of black clubs throughout the country. Um, but he was not well known to you know, quote unquote, middle America. And on Johnny Carson, uh, Fred, Fred Fox is asked by the host, you know, who is the hottest comedian working right now? And sort of without hesitation, he says Flip Wilson. And within months, Flip Wilson was on the Johnny Carson show. And then within a few years, he was a go-to guest host. So you can see really from that mention by Red Fox on Johnny Carson, um just this sort of evolution in his career he is like sought after um and i even saw ads in older newspapers where they're like you know johnny carson's find um when uh, of course it was red fox's find <laughs> likes to take the credit though uh let's listen to a quick clip from the flip wilson show now in the sketch flip is in his character as geraldine jones so he's got this and wig and that's a reoccurring role that he played on the program and here Geraldine is selected as a subject on NBC's reality documentary series, This Is Your Life, by host Ralph Edwards. This is too much! Yeah, well, come on now. Don't, don't, don't touch me. Don't you touch me, Ralph. You don't know me that well. You haven't been in my life but two minutes, honey. Geraldine, oh, I'm, I'm Ralph Edwards. I don't care if you Prince Edwards. Hey, Geraldine, will you join me on the stage where we have your check? <laughs> said, All right, Geraldine. I'll say, will you join me on the stage? I yes, don't know Ralph, I will. All right. Just mm -hmm. right ahead. Don't, don't walk behind me, Ralph. Oh. <laughs> right up this there. is too much. <laughs> what a surprise. I'll go after you, Ralph. We're equal, right? <laughs> <laughs> Very unusual, a man following me. Oh, I want to tell you, we, we just want to tell everybody about your life. It's all in here. I'll tell you everything you've done. Everything? Everything. <laughs> Ralph, if you tell him everything tomorrow, this place is going to be a bowling alley. <laughs> Such a fun time. Talking right now with Bethany Butler, author of Black TV. Uh, and I mean, interesting thing about Flip Wilson, Bethany Butler, is that I mentioned that King Cole's short-lived variety show up at the top. Same NBC producer, Bob Henry, was paired up with Flip Wilson uh, to produce the special. It turned out to be a massive hit. First night it aired, that gave him a lot of bargaining power, didn't it? It did, absolutely. And, and the, he became, you know, yeah, he, he owned his show. Um, so he was a pioneer in that. That's like a deal that almost nobody was getting at the time too, which is really incredible for a black man to have that power. Absolutely, right. And I should also mention that that show went on to win 18 Emmy nominations in its four years, had two wins. How would you describe the overall impact of a Flip Wilson uh, on, I mean, just not only the nation, but as far as uh, inspiration for future Black performers? Yeah, I think it was highly influential. And interestingly, you know, I don't think that sort of my generation millennials, um, I don't think that we know as much as we should about him. Um, I kind of had to do some digging and, you know, but also understanding that this, he was a huge star in his time and he did command so much power because he really sort of captured the heart of 
all of America. And, you know, it's interesting the clip you played about Geraldine, I think speaks to just how big of a deal Flip Wilson was, but also this character of Geraldine, like otherworldly. She had magazine covers of her own. Um, she was sort of part of the fabric of America, too. So moving forward, uh, next show I want to talk about Good Times that starred John Amos, Esther Rowley, Jimmy Walker, among others. I'll actually start with a clip this time because this clip kind of leads us into our, our next set of questions. But in this scene, uh, matriarch Florida Evans, who's played by Esther Rowley, lands a role on a TV commercial. And her son, J.J., a lot of people know J.J., uh, played by Jimmy Walker, he demonstrates how he thinks she should do the ad. My husband James used to have slow blood. <laughs> he would cut himself shaving on Monday and wouldn't bleed until Thursday. <laughs> but now, thanks to Vitabrite Health Tonic, my blood is fast, fast, fast. <laughs> now I bleed all the time. <laughs> Thank you, husband James, for that unsolicited testimony. <laughs> Which the grateful folks at Vitabrite will send you an additional check for $1,000. And remember, <laughs> Vitabrite is dynamite. <laughs> now, look, I get the sense that the show started out, you know, it's about a poor black family keeping their head above water in Chicago, but a lot of the focus ultimately ended up being on Jimmy Walker's JJ, right? Can you talk to me about what happened with that show and kind of how it was taken? Yeah, I think JJ was, you know, he was sort of a runaway character on what was supposed to be a family sitcom about, as you said, a family is sort of trying to keep its head above water um, in the projects in Chicago. And Jimmy Walker, you know, at some point he had used, he had sort of riffed and used this phrase, it's dynamite. Um, and the audience just roared and absolutely loved it. Um, and so he became sort of a breakout character. Uh, but I think for some of the other stars on the show, including Esserol and um, John Amos, it was also a source of tension because they wanted, you know, they saw the potential for the show and, and what it could um, communicate to America. And I think that to them, um, it leaned, you know, heavily on stereotypes and JJ's sort of his antics were sort of representative of that. I mean, I definitely get that, you know, within the black community, there was probably a sensitivity, I would imagine, to any sort of character that took on, um, for lack of a better term, sort of a minstrel sort of uh, approach, right? Where this person had a, had a catchphrase and, um, you know, the dimensions of them weren't really fully formed in the eye. And so people ended up just saying, hey, it's the guy uh, – you know, who who says dynamite. Um, overall, after, you know, that show progressed, was it ever possible for them to get away from kind of J.J. being, you know, this, this sort of character or this sort of draw, or did they always kind of just have to have him in the picture somehow? 
I think I think probably the latter they had to have him in the picture, though the show, you know, they did go sort of a different direction in the later seasons. They brought in the Janet Jackson character. They had other sort of uh, stories and characters who came in to interact with the Evans family. Um, but I also think that this this story and this idea of John Amos and Esther Roll sort of battling Norman Lear and the other producers, you know, again, it represents just the outsized responsibility that Black creators and talent have had to take on and, and continue to take on, I think, um, because they're so aware of what these shows mean to Black people and their community. So I'm going to fast forward. I also want to give some honorable mentions, though, of course, to Roots as being a major moment in Black television. Uh, you also do speak in your book about the very complicated legacy, of course, of Bill Cosby, who came about in the 1980s uh, with his Cosby show, I believe, around 1984. But I do want to land on a place where I started, as I mentioned earlier, where I entered the conversation about Black TV. And that was with, of course, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And this is a clip, I don't know about your community, Bethany Butler, but this is a clip that just hits everybody uh, in my life. This is Will Smith, James Avery, Uncle Phil, of course. And then Will's father, who was played by Ben Vereen, and the episode is titled Papa's Got a Brand New Excuse. Let's listen to a clip from that. I need him then, and I don't need him now. Will. Will. Now, you know what, Uncle Phil? I'm going to get through college without him. I'm going to get a great job without him. I'm going to marry me a beautiful honey, and I'm going to have me a whole bunch of kids. I'm going to be a better father than he ever was. And I sure as hell don't need him for that, because ain't a damn thing he could ever teach me about how to love my kids. How come you don't want me, man? Oh, gosh, this is the silence in that. Talking right now with Bethany Butler, author of Black TV, Five Decades of Groundbreaking Television. Um, as one YouTube commenter put it, Bethany, uh, Will said the thing that every child with an absentee dad asks themselves. I think even if a person didn't have an absentee father, the, the emotion of the scene, the use of silence, Will Smith's emotion hits so hard and really showed the range that black TV could explore. Could you talk about this scene and this moment? Yes, absolutely. I knew which scene you were going to play before you, you did, played right. it. Um, <laughs> that's such a memorable moment. Um, and I think it's a, it's a memorable moment for Will Smith as an actor as well. You sort of see his full range and him blossom from kind of an undiscovered acting talent and, you know, to someone who could, have this dramatic moment with a powerful actor like James Avery. Um, you know, the other thing that I love about this episode and and the these scenes is you have Ben Vereen playing right. uh, Will Smith's father. And, you know, as the YouTube commenter that you mentioned said, I mean, this dialogue, it was so raw and you could relate to it if you did have an absentee father or absentee parent. Um, and it's just this raw emotion. And I think for everyone, um, the people that I've talked to who were on the Fresh Prince, I mean, it's, it's a moment that they remember very vividly. Gosh, I remember watching that as a kid and, you know, when you're a young boy growing up in the 90s, being emotional is not the thing to be. And yet seeing that emotion from Will honestly made it OK to feel that grief. You know, it almost gave a certain, at least for me, a certain group of young men permission to have those feelings and to not channel it out as anger or something like that. Then, of course, 
uh, James Avery, Uncle Phil, gives him this big hug, and the camera moves down to this this gift that Will had bought his father, and it's of it's a sculpture of a grown person embracing a child. There's just so much in it. Uh, we're going to have to wrap with you in just a second, Bethany Butler. But I just want to ask: when you look at you know modern black television, we've got Scandal, we've got Atlanta. Um, even I would say Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which has Donald Glover in it right now. Um, what? How would you describe the phase of black TV that we're in today? Yeah, I think we're in sort of a golden era. You know, you mentioned Donald Glover and Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which in many ways, as you said, is a black TV show because of his involvement and because of his perspective that he brings to the show. Um, and it's, you know, it's the third show that we've seen from Donald Glover in the past decade. So I think that's definitely uh, a sign of the progress. Another is Abbott Elementary. There's been so much buzz around that. And we're seeing like mm. Cheryl Lee Ralph, a legendary entertainer, finally get her flowers. So I think right. we're moving in the right direction. Bethany Butler is the author of Black TV, Five Decades of Groundbreaking Television from Soul Train to Blackish and Beyond. She's also a former reporter for The Washington Post, where she covered TV and pop culture. Bethany Butler, thank you so much for making the time today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, love the stories in this book. Also, the pictures are just beautiful. Definitely something wonderful for the coffee table. When we come back, week-long series on love combines with our weekly series, Food Friday. We're trying some wedding cakes, y'all. Grab your fork, dive in. We're back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. It's Ear Talk on a Friday. Austin Cross with you. You know, we've been talking so much about love this week. And of course, it is Food Friday. So we thought, why not combine the two and talk wedding cakes? Joining us on Air Talk today, founder and cake artist at Sweet Pea Cakery LA. I love that word, cakery. Sweet Pea Cakery LA. They're based in La Cañada, Flint Ridge. Melanie Pendergast, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And I will just say, uh, we're live streaming right now on Instagram at LAist Official, and I've heard word that the audio might be a little bit funky, but you're going to want to tune in at least to see these beautiful cakes that are in front of me right now. There's is this eight cakes. Did you bring me eight cakes? I brought you eight. You brought eight cakes. How are we going to even get through this? <laughs> and they're all beautiful. They're, they're, they're small, but they're beautiful. There's roses on top. There's some raspberries. Is this a Ferrero Rocher yeah. on top? Oh, my gosh. I my love favorite. hazelnut. Hazelnut <laughs> is like really where it's at, right? Um, let's start here, though. You opened Sweet Pea in uh, 2017. Can you tell me a little bit about 
how you get into the business of wedding cakes to begin with? Oh, gosh. Um, it's all for me. It's all been word of mouth. Um, I also listed my business on The Knot and on Wedding Wire. So I get a lot of inquiries through there. And then um, Instagram as well. Instagram has been really great for me. So. I mean, it's, it's looking great right now on Instagram Live right now. LAist official. I'm showing off the um, the hazelnut cake, which has a Ferrero Rocher on top, cut in half, very artfully. Then it also has some gold leafing. Yeah. I mean, putting gold on food—that's just like next level. Um, I'm actually going to try this one first because I've got a lot of cakes to get through in ten minutes. So this is the last of my questions with no food in my mouth at this point. Um, but as I try this one. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people who might say, you know, cake is cake. What makes wedding cakes special in your view? Well, not only they have to be beautiful, but they have to taste good. Um, if you've ever been to a wedding and the cake was dry, <laughs> it's just not fun. And Ooh, this ain't dry. <laughs> Let me tell you right now. And the guests will talk about it for a while. So definitely not only does it have to look beautiful and it's your centerpiece, um, it gets to the crowd talking about it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also in your wedding pictures. You want it to look special. Right. But you also want to love how it tastes. So cake tastings are very, to me, are very important. Now, I've had this philosophy that, um, you know, when I got married, I had family. It became an international affair. My wife's family came out from Mexico. I brought some of my family came out from middle America. Mm-hmm. So combined, I was thinking... People want good food. Yes. <laughs> People want, yes. They didn't come all this way for something that's <laughs> underwhelming. So you got to treat them a little bit. And I know that you prefer, okay, first of all, I'll say I just had the uh, hazelnut chocolate cake and it's oh, <laughs> so moist, so good. <laughs> and I know that you have a thing for buttercream, which I also adore buttercream, buttercream over fondant for sure, forever. But why did you make that choice pretty consistently? I personally don't like the taste of fondant. Um, mm. Every, I, it's not one that I like to work with, to be honest. Buttercream is definitely my medium. Um, anything with buttercream, I excel in. It just comes naturally to me. It's almost like paint to me when I work with it. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, just to read some of the things that's in fondant, and you got sugar, of course, but mm-hmm. there's gelatin, vegetable oil, shortening. <laughs> I, I can't with this. It's what's edible in, Play-Doh. What's in buttercream, <laughs> That's what my though? kids call it. <laughs> Um, what makes up a buttercream? And as I ask, I'm going to try this cake with the raspberries. Is this the raspberry? Uh, is there a Lemon raspberry. Yeah. Lemon and raspberry. Okay, I'm going to show that one on Instagram right now. Uh, LA is official if you haven't checked it out yet. <laughs> but uh, what goes into a, a good buttercream in your view? Quality butter. Ooh. Quality you butter. Had me at butter, <laughs> Bethany. Um, so lemon and raspberry, which I'm about to try. Um, talk to me about this flavor combo. You're getting kind of the two fruits in there. I love lemon cream. I lemon Anything with lemon curd is my favorite. Um, and when you mix it with raspberry, it's just mm. a summer mm. treat. It's light. It's citrusy. Wow. And I just love raspberries. I mean, the way that you say <laughs> summer treat, just as the flavor was starting to hit me, it is kind of quintessential. It's light. Mm-hmm. I could see this being an outdoor wedding. Could be anything. It could be a Spring, beach wedding. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't tea have party. heavy dark flavor. <laughs> it does have the tea party. <laughs> tea party vibes for sure. Um, there's so many cakes in front of me. Is there one that you also think that I should try right now just to prioritize? Mm, signature chocolate and triple berry. Okay. Is this is that one here? Uh, or? 
That's this, triple berry. That's triple yeah. berry. Signature chocolate right here. Mm -hmm. you, you don't have to tell me twice with chocolate. This looks uh, incredible. It also is using the gold leafing on top, and there's these little chocolate round things on the top. What are those? They're little chocolate wafers. Chocolate wafers. <laughs> so I'm guessing that's going to give us a little bit of a crunch sort yes. of experience. Um, this one's really decadent. It's very rich. So but it's... One of the popular ones, aside from the triple berry. How do you start to navigate when a couple comes in and they maybe do their cake tasting? Mm -hmm. And, you know, one partner has their set of likes and dislikes. Another has their own set of dislikes. For, for example, I know my wife does not like anything sweet and lemon flavor. Cannot do sweet and lemon. Mm -hmm. I'm cool with it. I'm fine with it. Other hand, I'm very partial to chocolate. Is there a way to find a, a balance, a medium, or does often does somebody get a final say as to what the choice is going to be? Um, it's that's funny you say that because I I had a couple where she wanted zero fruit, no fruit oh. at all. Doesn't do um, fruit. <laughs> so we went with everything without fruit. Um, I, her fiance pretty much let her have the reins on that. So <laughs> I mean, um, you could do wow. one tier that's what you like mm -hmm. and then the next tier is what the tiered cake is what she would like mm -hmm. um there's been times where they wanted vanilla and chocolate but in the same tier so i alternated the cake layers vanilla chocolate and then mm. yeah i just i just have to commend you you're hearing my mm's here i have to commend you on how moist this cake is i'm so glad you're enjoying them it's it's so stellar. I'm going to try the berry one too. What was this berry one called here? Uh, it's my triple berry. Okay, so we we, we got to try, got to try the triple berry. Um, and as you said, yeah, sometimes it's just easy to defer because there's so many choices to make when you're planning a wedding it's anyway. A lot. Yeah, it, it kind of becomes one more thing to think about because then you got to think about who's sitting next to whom and mm -hmm. and why they can't sit next to each other. <laughs> um, how far out though? Because we're in February right mm -hmm. now right before we head into like a spring summer wedding season how far out do people usually plan their cakes um six to eight months at least um and it just depends on the if the how popular the bakery is too because if they're high in demand their lead time is about eight months to a year wow so Say somebody comes in three months before they say, oh, my gosh, I did not plan at all. <laughs> did not get my cake. Can they still get a cake last minute? Or if somebody's if hearing available. this now and yeah. they're like, I got a June wedding. If I'm available. Could, if you're yeah. available. When you say available, does this mean like you're from dawn till dusk, you're making cakes pretty much at this point? Or uh. Yes. If <laughs> yes. like I have a free. So if that weekend I have a free slot, time mm -hmm. slot, um, I only do. About two, three cakes a week because it's just me. Um, so, and just the, you. It's just me. Just one. Yeah. What? <laughs> this is the one person operation. You made all these cakes in front of I me made right all, now. I did. Freshly baked. <sighs> How do you sleep? How do you find time? Uh, what is time? <laughs> <laughs> what is time? Scott, real existential here on Air Talk right now. Talking with uh, Melanie Pendergast. I mean, you're not going to have any time after this. Talking with <laughs> Melanie Pendergast, uh, cake artist at Sweet Pea Cakery in LA. They're based in La Cunada, Flint Ridge. I'm about to dig into this berry one here, uh, which also has gold flakes on top. I mean, it's gold such on a nice everything. Touch. <laughs> yes. You can't go wrong with gold. And, and who doesn't like gold? And live streaming on Instagram, <laughs> I should say, Alice Official, if you want to see this beautiful cake. But I'm going to try this one. But tell me about some of the berries I'm about to experience as I go for this bite. So these berries, it's raspberry, blueberry, and blackberry. And mm. I roast these in the oven. Roasted? Mm-hmm. Wow. And so that takes away the pop, but it maintains the flavor. Yeah. Um, and then it's got a very moist cake underneath. And is this buttercream that goes along with it here? 
Yes, it's um, this mm. like a simple classic vanilla bean buttercream. Oh, so stellar. Yeah, mm -hmm. we've got about let's say 20 seconds left, but as a person goes out shops maybe for a wedding cake, mother-in-laws, in-laws of all <laughs> kinds, family, what should people keep in mind? I'm sorry, can you repeat What that? should people, sorry, my mouth is oh. full of your cake. <laughs> what should people keep in mind? What should they keep in mind? Have fun with oh. your cake tasting. Forget the stress. I know weddings are stressful, but when it's your cake tasting is the best part. Okay, hopefully they have as much fun as I just did <laughs> with you. Uh, Melanie Pendergast, cake artist at Sweet Pea Cakery LA, which is based in La Cunada, Flint Bridge. I gotta say, home of these moist cakes, and they're just oh so beautiful too. Uh, <laughs> live streaming on LAist Official, I might keep the video going a little bit just to show off some more of these cakes up close if you want to join us. I'm Austin Cross, this is Air Talk, also Film Week, coming at you next with Larry. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a stellar weekend. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. I'm LA's senior education reporter, Mariana Dale. The communities that are more marginalized or that do not have access are the ones that are in most need. I help families understand, navigate, and engage with the forces that shape education from kindergarten through high school. How do I explain to my daughter that the same day you got to celebrate a birthday, you got to celebrate the day your mama left. And I make space for students to tell their own stories. LA's independent journalism, fact-based journalism. It's Film Week on L.A. as 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us, and I sure hope you come see us in person. It's the 22nd Annual Film Week Academy Awards preview at the Historic Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles. All 11 of our Film Week critics will be on stage. We'll show clips from all the Best Picture nominees. It's going to be a blast. The critics are never funnier nor better than for our annual show when they can all react to each other. So please join us. Get your tickets now for Sunday, March 3rd, 1 in the afternoon at the Orpheum. Tickets at laist.com slash events. That's laist.com slash events. And we're joined by two of our 11 critics today, Amy Nicholson, who writes on film for the New York Times and hosts the podcast Unspooled, and Wade Major of synagogues.com and author of The Substack, Hollywood Heretic. Well, let's begin with Madam Webb, which is a sci-fi adventure series starring Dakota Johnson, directed by S.J. Clarkson in her feature directorial debut, and she's one of the four credited screenwriters. Wade, Madam Webb. I'm going to try to be as constructive as possible, because uh, <laughs> just ranting for a couple of minutes about how abysmal this is really doesn't do anyone any good, and it is abysmal. And I think they know it's abysmal. And when the Marvels failed, which, you know, this makes the Marvels look like the Magnificent Seven. The Marvels actually had some funny stuff in it, it. It, it. It's not good, but it's not, you know, completely without redeeming moments. This is abysmal on every conceivable level. It's badly cast. It's it, The screenplay is atrocious 
in that this feels like a terrible first draft that someone rushed out in about a week and no one bothered to change anything. And my question, you know, I've said that the, the development process at the studios is broken for years. And, and the story here, look, this is very simple. Sony has to keep making Spider-Man movies and anything even remotely connected to Spider-Man so that the rights don't revert to Marvel. So they're just coming up with Venom and every other thing. Any ancillary C-level, D-level character from the Spider-Verse, they're just going to keep making those movies. That's where Madam Web comes out. Madam Web is kind of a peripheral Spider-Verse character. She's a little bit like Xavier in the X-Men. She's, you know, in the comics she's older and she's wheelchair bound and she has like a psychic connection to uh, whatever um here you know she's this is a kind of an origin story um i won't get into the details dakota johnson is is madam webb and she is her power is that she is conveniently clairvoyant and at moments that she can't control she knows what's going to happen maybe a few minutes later and winds up becoming caretaker to three girls who are jeopardized by the big bad who is, you know, has spider powers and he wants to kill them. Why and the how of all of this, if you want to see the film, it'll all come together. The problem is, it doesn't really come together here. The whole thing is a tease for what they hope will become a franchise. And it cheats its way through it every step of the way. Things happen just because they need them to happen. Trucks show up just because they need trucks to be there. Things just, they just happen to be in the right places at the right time. And then she will make atrocious decisions that make no sense whatsoever, just bad judgment. And you sit there as an audience member and you think, why are they letting their character, someone we're supposed to be rooting for, make such terrible decisions? Oh, I get it, because the bad decision precipitates the next twist that you need in the story. It's just dreadful screenwriting. It's it's like B-level, C-level, D-level screenwriting on every conceivable level. The development process here should have been better. Sony has dozens of executives who had to sign off on this. Lorenzo Di Bonaventura is the producer. 30-year veteran executive. Harvard, Wharton, a guy who ran production at Warner Brothers. He knows what a good script is. So where's the breakdown? I don't have an answer to that, but somewhere this movie is telling us that at the studios, the entire development process has completely collapsed. All right, Madam Web is the film. It's in wide release, rated PG-13, starring Dakota Johnson, directed by S.J. Clarkson. This is me now, a love story. It's a musical drama starring Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck, Trevor Noah, Sofia Vergara, Neil deGrasse Tyson are in the film. Dave Myers directed, and it's written by Lopez and Matt Walton. Amy, what did you think of This Is Me, Now a Love Story? This is actually a fun and short experimental film. It's kind of a collection of music videos cut through with scenes of Jennifer Lopez talking to her therapist, who is played by Fat Joe. It's coming out kind of in tandem with her new album. And I have to say, it is a lot of fun. It is the portrait of J-Lo, the artist, as a love addict who realizes that her behavior has been publicly ridiculous. You know, and she's this love addict who I think is kind of exposing her her ridiculousness. It's a very self-mocking and open film that I found, like, incredibly endearing. You know, she's smart about being relatable, about being a public screw-up in the tabloids. And so the arc here is that, you know... This movie is also through like kind of expressionist, metaphorical, music video kind of settings. You know, gigantic wet landscapes where a motorcycle runs through it. Glass rooms where people are tethered to each other and like fighting. Um, 
And it starts with like her on this motorcycle riding with her dream love who dies in the very first scene. And I did not know until I looked at the credits that the dream love was Ben Affleck. But good for him. He also shows up in this movie as a, as a newscaster with a terrible blonde wig on purpose. Good for him. They're having fun. I really just enjoyed this because she is absolutely going for it. Whatever this ridiculous story is that she wants us to know about herself, however she wants to say like, yeah, I dated guys who got caught with guns in public. You remember that story. Wasn't very smart. Um, she's just poking fun at herself the whole time. Part of the part of where the story goes at some points is like up in the skies. She has this council of zodiac signs who are gossiping about her mistakes, <laughs> and they are just played by like Jane Fonda, Kiki Palmer, <laughs> Sofia Vergara, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I mean, and they're just having a blast. Everybody's in ridiculous costumes and calling her silly. She has a montage of like three blowout weddings talking about her her need to be in love. And in all of them, she's playing it great. Her face is glowing. She's acting like she's deeply in love. Her friends are there stealing the silverware and gossiping about how long this marriage is going to last. You know, I can just see this movie being so fun. It's so fun. <laughs> what are, Wade, what did you think? Amy's looking at me like, please don't say anything bad about it. No, I, for the most part, I did I did like it. When it started, because it kind of comes out of, out of the, it, it comes out with all guns blazing, and you're not quite sure, is this a musical? What am I looking at here? It feels like, and, and, it, and very quickly you realize, okay, it's her new album. These are the new songs from the album, and she's expanded the idea of concept album into a concept um, narrative film that is basically why shoot a bunch of different music videos for all the songs when you can tie them all together in one narrative construct and have kind of a, 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 a help people to understand that there is a central theme to the album and to the film. So I really eventually finally got on board with it. I, I figured out what it was doing, and she is so sweet and so sincere. <laughs> I mean, she really is. And because very talented. She's pouring her heart out here and all of her vulnerabilities and how, how what a hopeless romantic she is, and that's very infectious. So once you understand this is this is just her very affectionate vanity film that she's just pouring her heart out, then you can really kind of get into the groove. And it's only an hour long, so it's fine. I the one thing I didn't like, I didn't like the the Zodiac quorum of cameos. That 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 was cringy to me. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson should never do this ever. Again. <laughs> never he's again. up for anything, though. I know. One of the things I like about him is he's a good sport. This is me now, a love story. The musical drama is streaming on Amazon Prime, starring Jennifer Lopez and and a cast of stars. Dave Myers directed. It's rated PG thirteen. Players, a romantic comedy starring Gina Rodriguez and Damon Wayans Jr. Trish Size, the director, and Whit Anderson wrote Players. Wade? Here's our, our Valentine's Week uh, opener. I, I have to say I am admittedly too old and too married to probably fully connect to this. This is uh, this is for people in there, you know, for New York, young New York single professionals who are fighting in the dating and relationship scene right now. And uh, it it I guess it's representative of that. And there is some real sweetness to it. I mean, Gina Rodriguez produced it and, and acts in it. And she is very, very engaging. Uh, Damon Wayans Jr., very subtle, um, very subdued, super talented. He's wonderful in this as well. 
everybody kind of hits they hit the beats. You know, it is a modern romantic comedy, so it's got one foot in the in the here and now, and it's got one foot sort of in the traditional tropes of the romantic comedy. Um, so I, I'm going to say, even though it didn't totally work for me, I'm not the audience. So I'm going to assume that it's probably going to work for its target audience. We're talking about the romantic comedy Players, Amy. Yeah, I wound up liking this too. It, it's got the element of like kind of modern cynicism about love. You know, actually the whole setup here at the beginning is that it's about this group of friends. Gina Rodriguez is one of them and it's her buddies. They all work at a newspaper. And what they do at night is they go out kind of not looking for love, just looking for one night hookups. And they run these operations kind of like a heist movie like or like The Sting, where they sit down, they see somebody cute across the table, and one of them says, let's run Little Mermaid. And it's like a football play they've done a lot of time where somebody will put on this fake accent and somebody will pretend to forget their wallet or complicated things spin out all with the, the purpose of like getting this one person to pay attention to their friend for one night and then never talk to them again. And so where the plot really takes off is, you know, she winds up having a crush on a guy who's like, one of those like litera- literati cool guys, you know, does yeah. journalism in Syria and everybody goes to work trying to get him to take her seriously when she's just a local sports reporter. I will say the newspaper scenes in this movie, it's not that I, I don't buy that like a group of friends who've known <laughs> each other from college would all magically wind up working at the same newspaper where one of them's in obits and one of them does graphic design and she is a sports girl. Yeah. But the actual newspaper scenes themselves, if you once you get past that. I kind of liked because it is set in the modern world of journalism where all the newspapers are downsizing, where a mid-sized paper like this is barely holding on by its fingernails. And so I enjoyed seeing them at work. I would just say this is a rom-com where all the emphasis is on comedy and not so much on the romance, for sure. Players is the film starring Gina Rodriguez and Damon Wayans Jr. It's unrated and it's at the Bay Theater in Pacific Palisades and streaming on Netflix. Drift, uh, a film uh, tells the story of a young Liberian refugee barely escaping to Greece from her war-torn country. The film stars Cynthia Erivo, Anthony Chen is the director, and Suzanne Farrell and Alexander Maxik are the screenwriters. It's based on Maxik's novel of a decade ago. Amy, what did you think of Drift? Yeah, this is a really serious, straightforward character study piece set of you know said um discussing the refugee crisis it, in a way that feels very much of today but is set um back in the time where charles taylor and his army of child soldiers were you know rampaging and, and killing throughout liberia um and then as in now a lot of people wind up in the greek islands which is what happens to our character jacqueline who's played by cynthia arrivo the one interesting angle into this film is that we're this is a refugee crisis film about a refugee herself who I think has a lot in common with most people, where you really can't think of her as somebody very, very, very different from you. You know, she's from an upper class family. She's very educated. She spent a lot of time in Britain. She was living a life not that different from the life any of us are living right now. But she happens to go home when there's an attack on her home and she loses everything, including her family. And so it allows her to kind of wander these Greek islands in her one outfit living this double life, you know, where she can put on her accent and say the right things to try to act like she's going to book a reservation that night where people don't necessarily know how how much pain she's seen and she doesn't want them to know. So she really just plays this character as a person who's got a lot of psychological damage she doesn't want us to see. And they're billing this as like a friendship piece about her slow friendship with Aaliyah Shawcott, who's there as an American divorcee who's in a tour guide. But really, the one flaw in this movie is that the Aaliyah Shawcott character is just there to be like endlessly nice and empathetic and patient with no real inner life as her own. She's just there to try to get Cynthia Riva to, to open up and for, to allow Cynthia to try to peel back layers, which really happens 
very slowly and in a way, not at all. It's honest about that, that nothing can be fixed. What did you think of Drift, Wade? I think it's very good. Uh, I think it's probably the best performance that we've um, maybe ever had from Cynthia Erebo. Uh, because it's not, this is not really a narrative film. This is a, this is a mood film. And it's, it's basically a study of trauma. And, and so Cynthia is able to, she's given a lot of latitude in a very nonverbal way to go through the stages of trauma and, and recovery from trauma and relapse into trauma and, and how that impacts you. And so it's a very physical performance. It's not, it, there aren't, you know, a lot of lengthy monologues and dialogues. There's, there's some, but for most of the film, you're watching what she does. You're looking at her eyes and her, her body language and, and, and you're, you're piecing together how damaged she is and how she is struggling to overcome that damage. And it's, it's really wonderful to see her inhabit the physicality of that. And, and you know, you, you see the struggle going on behind her eyes. It's a, it's a wonderful piece for performance, but not extremely narrative. We're talking about Drift, uh, directed by Anthony Chen, starring Cynthia Revo. It's rated R in English and Greek with English subtitles. You can see it at Lemley's Monica Film Center, Santa Monica. Then next Friday, it expands into more theaters. We'll have more from our critics Wade and Amy when we continue on Film Week in just one minute. Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Looking forward to seeing you coming up very soon, March 3rd, Sunday afternoon at 1 for the 22nd Annual Film Week Academy Awards Preview. All of our critics on stage, a very big day. Everybody who comes just enjoys seeing the critics at their very best, clips of the films. We'll talk about the major categories, the performance, the writing, directing, and, of course, best picture, and members of the audience will also be able to vote. So please join us Sunday afternoon, March 3rd, at the historic Orpheum Theater on Broadway in downtown Los Angeles. Tickets for our Oscar show at LAist.com slash events. We continue on Film Week with our critics Wade Major and Amy Nicholson. Up next is the drama Bleeding Love starring uh, Ewan McGregor and uh, Clara McGregor. Emma Westenberg is the director and Ruby Castor wrote the screenplay Bleeding Love. Wade. Really surprised, and, and not surprising that this is good because Ewan McGregor just doesn't pick bad material. Um, but given how sort of low budget it was, and it is a little bit of a personal project, Clara McGregor also co-wrote this. Clara McGregor is Ewan McGregor's eldest daughter. So you, you get the sense, well, this is kind of a family thing. They wanted to make a movie together, so they went and got a few bucks and made something small. So you sort of walk in with maybe low expectations. This is a bit of a sledgehammer. It's really surprising. It's a, it's a, it's a road trip, but it's a story of a father and his daughter and uh, on this road trip, and you're trying to piece together what's going on. What really is going on, it gives this a, a way fairly early is that um, he, he has a new family. The, the family broke apart, and for whatever reason, she has inherited his substance abuse issues that contributed to the breakup, and she almost overdosed. So he is now taking her to rehab, and she doesn't necessarily know that. And so the trip is, 
is all about the the reconstruction and the damage of this father-daughter relationship and how it sort of how the the damage done to the original nuclear family reverberates. And there are flashback scenes here where he and she remember their relationship when she was just a little girl. And it's devastating because the contrast between where they were when they were when she was small and they were happy and where they are now is if I mean if you're a parent yeah. like I am yeah, and I'm I got a feeling daughter. It even as you describe it, it's just that juxtaposition gives this film so much power. And then once that has sort of sown its seeds, then both of them are able to really, really tear it up in their scenes together. And you you feel like there's probably a lot of autobiographical stuff that they're both pouring into this. Um, by the end, you're in a you're in a, a a very scarred place, but a better place. And uh, I think this is a pretty remarkable small film. What a powerful premise for a movie. Yeah, it is. We're talking about Bleeding Love, starring Ewan McGregor and Clara McGregor, Emma Westenberg, the director. It's unrated. It's at Lemley's Town Center 5 in Encino, also available on demand. Land of Bad, an action thriller starring Liam Hemsworth, Russell Crowe, Luke Hemsworth, directed by William Eubank, who co-wrote the film with David Fregario. Land of Bad, Wade. There needs to be a, a course. Amy, you're going to agree with me on that. There needs to be a lesson where film critics tell filmmakers why you do not want to use certain titles, because critics will run with them. You don't want to name a movie Land of Bad. It opens <laughs> up too many jokes. Um, this is not very good. I'm not going to go to the obvious place, but I mean, look, it's a, it's a behind enemy lines, guys on a mission movie. And there, there are at least 10,000 of these that have been made over the last 20 or 30 years. They're all basically the same. Got Delta Force guys, you know, they go behind enemy lines and all things go wrong. They have to be extracted. And the only thing that distinguishes this from some of the others is that, you know, you've got Russell Crowe, who's unfortunately overweight now. So he plays a drone pilot as opposed to a real pilot. 20 years ago, he would have been a real pilot. Now he's a drone pilot. He sits there with headphones on and, you know, controls a drone. And, you know, it's a great performance by Crowe, but it's not a demanding film. Liam Hemsworth and Luke Hemsworth get to be in a movie together that doesn't include their brother. Okay, that's that's fine. But there just isn't any story here that we haven't been through a thousand times. And you know exactly every single beat when they're, oh, they're almost going to die. Oh, they almost got to that. Russell Crowe is racing through the streets. Is he going to make it? Of course he's going to make it. He always <laughs> makes it. Russell Crowe isn't going to let anyone die. So, you know, there's no, there's nothing surprising here. There's nothing original. There's nothing inventive. It's just straight by the numbers. Land of Bad is in select theaters. It's rated R. Here is a Belgium set film written and directed by Bas Devos. Uh, it stars uh, Stefan Gotha and Leo Gong. Amy, what do you think of Here? Yeah, this is another one of those small slice of life films that's really just all about vibe. You know, the vibe here being displacement and loneliness. And it's fine. I can see why it's been winning awards abroad, but I can also see why people might go and see it and be like, is that all? You know, <laughs> the, the setting here is Brussels, and we have these two characters. One is a, a incredibly muscular Romanian man who just has very, very strong legs. Um, he wears shorts the whole film, and he's lonely, and he's thinking, maybe it's time I leave Brussels and go back home indefinitely. I don't feel like I've put down roots here, essentially. And the other person is a botanist um, who specializes in, in studying moss. And she doesn't have that much of a life either, it seems, except spending time at like her auntie's uh, restaurant. 
And most of the film is just the two of them wandering the streets separately with this idea of pay attention to the small things, pay attention to the people kind of wandering through. There's a lot of metaphorical allusions to seeds that blow around and need to be planted and small city plants that nobody notices. And then when they finally do meet at the end of the film, they don't really talk that much. You know, I mean, really the only thing that held my interest here was the cinematography, which is just gorgeous. There's beautiful shots of rain, so many shots of plants and greenery. I mean, this is a very short movie and probably 20 minutes of it just feels like you're looking at plants while music plays, or maybe it's just silent. You know, there's a little sequence of cells under a microscope and it's really beautiful to look at I guess if you're a person who just wants to dip into something smooth and pleasant that makes you feel a little smarter I guess that sounds smart that you went to go see it sure but this is a pretty empty example of that it genre. sounds odd to sort of keep your leads separate for the almost almost the entire film unless there's a big payoff when, when they connect yeah not really because they're both people who keep their their thoughts and their emotions very close to the chest so even when they're together they're just hiking about 10 feet apart and I guess if you're a buttoned-up kind of person, you might find that romantic. I like it when people talk. Here, uh, written and directed by Baz Devos, is unrated. Uh, it's in multiple languages with English subtitles. It's at the Los Feliz 3 and expands next week to the Lumiere Music Hall in Beverly Hills. Down in Dallas Town is a documentary that looks at the memories of JFK's assassination six decades later. Alan Governor is the director, Wade. I give Governor all the credit in the world for taking a subject that has been done to death, the assassination of President Kennedy, and coming at it in a new and refreshing way. This is really interesting. Um, the, the the subtitle to this, it's Down in Dallas Town from JFK to K2, K2 being the the drug that is just, uh, you know, the the, uh, the it's kind of an opioid derivative. It's a cannabinoid, and it's just devastating communities like Dallas in particular. It's, it's more powerful than heroin. It's just wiping out communities. And so this is drawing not a perfect line, but kind of a line from the assassination to what's happening in Dallas today. And it's, it's, it's reviving the Kennedy assassination through the memories of a lot of just people on the street, the, the public memories of people in Dallas who were there that day, who were kids or were younger. One woman took a photo. You know, these are people that we haven't really been exposed to to any great degree in the, in the, the broader documentaries. And um, it's not trying to get to the bottom of things. You know, one woman says, I think the CIA and the FBI did it. And that's, that's fine. You know, it, they all have a different perspective. But it's more about how it's impacted them, and by extension, how the impact of, of every trauma that has hit Dallas filters down to this drug crisis that we're having right now. And, you know, it's, again, it's not a perfect line, but it's a very, it's a provocative line. And sewn into all of this, he plays all the songs, all of these classic pop tunes and folk tunes that were written about the assassination. And there are a ton of them. I had no idea there were so many songs written about JFK and the assassination. I didn't need Tons them. of them. And he's got the original album art and, you know, they pop up on the screen. And so it's, it's a little bit of a collage. It's not a, it, it, it doesn't sort of perfectly bring everything together. It doesn't perfectly hold together, but it paints a picture. And it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's an effective picture. Down in Dallas Town, the documentary from Alan Governor. It's unrated and it starts streaming on Monday, President's Day, on Amazon Prime Video. Monolith, uh, a thriller that stars Lily Sullivan, who is the only actor in the film, Matt Vesely is the director, Lucy Campbell, the screenwriter, Amy Monolith. 
Yeah, uh, this is a, a one character movie about a podcaster who specializes in unsolved mystery podcasts who has screwed up on her last hit show and become doxxed, you know, when your personal information gets put online. So she's forced to hide out at her parents' home, which is very rich and very nice and very cold. I'm a podcaster and I am all for movies about the weird world of podcasting, especially ones that like this one are poking fun at unsolved mystery podcasts, you know, which have hugely popular, incredibly cliche, you know, cliffhangers and red herrings and ominous voices promising that at some point this is going to get interesting and it usually never does and then it peters away. And takes away. forever to get there. And that's exactly what this movie is. It's making fun of it, but it's also the exact same thing itself. You know, it kind of, it, the end is a real letdown. Um, but I will say the one thing I like about this character as you're watching her obsessively put together this true crime thing about a strange black brick that people keep having is where the movie is good in moments is just hearing her interview people that she's going to use in repurpose for her podcast and the way she pushes and teases answers out of them that she can chop into sound bits that was great everything else eh. monolith wade yeah i agree with that i'm a podcaster too and i was gonna say you know we we don't ever have this kind of drama when we do podcasts we don't like speak for yourself well no it's you, you know why isn't that uploading faster why am i you know why is why my computer just crash why I, the volume is off can we can we, you know those are the things that are things the, of nightmares way yeah yes. all terrifying um but uh, but yeah it, it, it it's it's a, I, I admire it for the experiment i admire the that it's reaching to try to do something and it doesn't quite get its arms around it but uh, you know a for effort all right monolith uh australian film starring lily sullivan who's by herself on screen it's rated r you can see it at lemley's monica film center and it's uh for on-demand viewing as well and finally we have lights out an action thriller uh the film directed by christian sesma chad lawn gary charles are the screenwriters wade if you were a fan of chuck norris movies in the 1980s you will love this I will just say that straight out. Uh, if you didn't, then you won't. It's not very good, but I enjoyed the hell out of it because Frank Grillo is my age, and every time I see Frank Grillo just pounding it on screen, I feel like i got to go work out. And, you You're know, living vicariously. I've got to live vicariously <laughs> through Frank. Yeah, Frank's, uh, Frank's a, a war veteran, Gulf War veteran, uh, Afghanistan uh, veteran who uh, he's now just a, you know, he's, he's a drifter and he's embittered. And he bumps into Mackay Pfeiffer, who's an ex-con, who says, hey, man, you know, after, after a bar fight, he says, I, 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 got so, I got something for you. And, of course, he wants to turn him into a, into a, a fight club fighter, you know, an underground fighter at these, these illicit, uh, uh, you know, mafia kind of crime-driven fights. What he doesn't realize is they bump into this world where the person who is making the most money out of all of this is this crooked LAPD police detective, uh, this decorated officer played by Jamie King, who has a you know a public image to maintain, but she's corrupt as can be underneath. And uh, then a lot of other people get introduced into this, and I never really quite understood how all the criminal activity interwove with the other criminal activity. I don't understand how Dermot Mulroney's bad guy figures in with the other bad guys. Don't really need to. It's just one of those movies. It's like a Chuck Norris movie, and I enjoyed those in the '80s, so I I will forgive this all of its uh, all of its flaws. Lights out, Amy. I saw this movie for one reason only, and it's because I was promised that also in the cast is Scott Adkins, who tends to elevate these movies. He is a phenomenal action star. He's an athlete who can do anything with his body. So I was sitting here basically screaming at the movie, where's Scott Adkins? Where's Scott Adkins? He shows up for two minutes, fires a machine gun in a pretty unsatisfying close-up that does not highlight what this man can do. And then that's Uh, it. And I was so upset. It's a critic's trap. That's the the noted critic's trap. I was there for Frank Green. 
Griot. But I get it. If you're there for Scott Atkins, you're going to have a problem. Yeah. So Lights Out is the action thriller uh, directed by Christian Sesma. It's rated R. It's at the Lumiere Cinema in Beverly Hills and available on demand as well. Just want to remind you that all 11 of our critics will be on stage at the historic Orpheum Theater downtown Los Angeles on Broadway coming up March 3rd, exactly a week before the Oscars are handed out in Hollywood, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, all 11 of our critics on stage. We're going to take you category by category. The best acting performances, supporting actors, we'll talk about the two screenplay categories, uh, the best animated feature, director, and best picture. We'll also show clips of all of the best picture nominees, so we'll really have a chance to get into it, hear the pros and cons, the performances uh, or the films that our critics think were overlooked that should have been in the Oscar nominees, and we'll also uh, hear from them them what they think should get the honors come the following week. So please join us. Tickets are available at LAist.com slash events. That's LAist.com slash events. And the date again, Sunday, March 3rd, Orpheum Theater, downtown Los Angeles, 1 p.m. I hope to see you there. Coming up, we'll talk with Oscar-nominated actress Sandra Hewler. She's in two of the Best Picture nominees. We'll talk with her when we come back. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Democracy needs to be heard. This is Michelle Martin from NPR's Morning Edition. It's a fact. Local journalism fuels democracy. When local news thrives, so does civic participation. LAist and NPR are committed to keeping you and your community informed. But we can't do that without your support. Democracy needs you, and so do we. So please become a member now at laist.com give. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. It's been quite a year for Sandra Yule. She's been Oscar nominated for Best Actress as the star of Anatomy of a Fall. She also recently starred in The Zone of Interest, and both films are Oscar nominated for Best Picture. In Anatomy of a Fall, Sandra plays a writer whose husband dies in an unexplained fall of the couple's home in the French Alps. She's eventually charged with his murder. One of the key pieces of evidence is this argument between the couple a day before his death. Her husband surreptitiously recorded it. I'm not the one who put you where you are. I've nothing to do with it. You're not sacrificing yourself, as you say. You choose to sit on the sidelines because you're afraid. Because your pride makes your head explode before you can even come up with the little jam of an idea. And now you wake up and you're 40 and you need someone to blame. And you're the one to blame. Ooh, a tense scene. Sandra Goulet, thank you so much for joining us today on Film Week. 
Hi, thank you. What, what's it like for you to hear or to see that scene in all its intensity? I'm sure as, as you're talking about the film around the world, you hear it a lot. What's it like? Oh, oh, you know, I I just think that Laurence Sénéchal and Justine chose the right takes. I mean, the scene is really working. It is touching people all over the world. And obviously, a lot of people recognize something in it that it has to do with them that is related to their own life or their own way of thinking or their own pain. Or I can only speculate. And um, that makes me really, that touches me. Yeah. What is this time since both of these films have been honored with Best Picture nominations and you getting uh, the highest acting in the U.S., uh, highest honor for acting, uh, Best Actress nomination? Uh, how has your life changed since this has been announced? Oh, you know, it's not really affecting my private life that really has not so much to do with all of this, and I really love to keep it separated from what's going on in the business world. But um, the life that is related to the public or that is related to work, uh, that has changed a lot. Yeah, there are a lot of interesting projects coming my way that I didn't see coming, and I'm very grateful for that. And some people talk to me in the streets now, which they didn't do before. <laughs> I, I can't remember an actor starring in two Best Picture nominees who speaks different languages in each because in the zone of interest, you speak German. Uh, here you're speaking English and some French. So so three languages we've heard you, you speak in films this year. I know that's not necessarily unusual for actors in, in European films to switch languages, but to have two that are uh, such big films here in the United States is, is a different experience. And you know, speak to the... Um, what it's like to act in different languages like that, or is, is is that just very natural for you? It's a privilege in the first place. It's such a privilege to have directors who want to see this, who want to work on this, who also give you the resources to practice and to learn all these things and who trust in your ability to to in the end do all that you know it's it's definitely a challenge at the same time it's really liberating i feel when i act in a different language i cannot be perfectionist at any point because i really don't know how this really works i can just assume that uh, the people who are talking to me are telling me the truth about what it sounds like whatever but i could never feel it myself so it's i i love i love to do this that's the point of it all. Yeah. And and when you read this screenplay from the director of the film, Justine Trier, and, and Arthur Harari, what was your reaction the first time through that that screenplay? It left me breathless. That's That was the first thing I found it very on point. I found it so accurate and very well observed. I found it in a way honest that it's almost painful, and I very much respected the effort of the couple, which Justine and Arthur are, to be this open about relationships, not necessarily their own. I think they kind of wrote down their worst nightmare. They don't live that way, but um, to go to that place, which is really, really dark. And yeah, I, I, as I said, it left me breathless. I didn't know 
what to think about the character, really, and I really wanted to find out how this is going to work. And the audience doesn't really know about your character either. You know, so much is so much is left undefined, and and we're not certain what's really happened here. Did he kill himself? Was he killed? It's it's very very unclear. And what were your thoughts about that ambiguity in the script as you read it? Well, you know, I think that's life. I mean, we never know things 100%. There is some science that can do that in, on a certain level. But as humans, we never know what is the truth. You can talk about your own truth, what you believe in and what you want to uh, protect or something like that. But you can never know everything about a person. And we have to learn to live with those gaps. And that sense, the film is also really political because it denies or it it it, it doesn't um, it refuses to have any simple solution for anything. And there are some some forces in the world right now who really want simple answers to very difficult questions. And the film says that's not possible. And I find that very I find that very relieving in a way and very calming because it means you can certainly make an effort to to simplify things maybe sometimes but it definitely won't work so you can as well let it go and just accept the complexity of things we're talking with the star of the oscar nominated anatomy of a fall nominated for best picture the director of the film justine trier is nominated for best director and our guest sandra Houlet is nominated for Best Actress for her performance in the film. And it's it's one of two terrific performances that we saw here in the U.S. in the past year, the other for the zone of interest in which she plays the wife of uh, the head of, of uh, Auschwitz and what that experience is like in their family home, which is right there just outside the walls of the death camp. And um, we we see in her daily experiences the disconnect between the atrocities committed across the wall and and the um, day to day experiences of the family in in their home. Uh, Sandra, let's let's talk about uh, the courtroom scenes here because. This is part of the drama that we don't know what played out. We don't know what twists and turns are going to unfold over the course of it. And for American audiences, I think it's fascinating to see the French legal system play out. And I just wonder for you, in playing those scenes in the courtroom, what were some of the things that particularly stood out to you or, or were, were interesting for you as an actor to, to take on? whole experience in the courtroom was changing every day. I mean, in the beginning, we were a bit uh, assuming that it's a kind of a theater. Uh, and in the end, it isn't. In, in one way, it is because you also try to find a story that you can sell to the audience or the, the um, I don't know the English word for the geschworene, but, you know, to people who will decide in the end. And for the judge, but on the other hand, people want you to be authentic and you have to try to make them believe that you're telling, yeah, the truth. And I mean, the best way to do this is to actually tell the truth. So it's got nothing to do with theater because people don't 
learn any lines or anything. They're really trying to, they, they fight for their life, actually. It's like a complete difference. But I, I love this experience because the audience was a real audience. It was cast people from the street and sent where oh. we shot, uh, we shot that and they came there every day and they didn't know anything about the case. They didn't know what was going on. So we were actually trying to convince them and their reactions were very original all the time that they weren't, uh, nobody forced them to do anything. So, uh, so that was made the situation kind of real and the tension in the courtroom scenes was actually real because also there is not so much space to move. You have to sit in one place. I mean, the prosecutor can move and the, the lawyer can move. Uh, the judge always sits. And of course, Sandra also always sits. You're, you really have to focus on your thoughts and your appearance and what you want to show and what you want to hide. We're talking with Sandra Ulay about her film in which she stars and is nominated for Best Actress at the next Oscars. The film is Anatomy of a Fall. It's in theaters now, also available on demand. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with her, talk about working with terrific young actor in the film, Milo Machado Grainer. I also talk about working with director Justine Trier. It's Film Week on L.A. It's 89.3. Back in a minute. It's Film Week on L.A. It's 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with Oscar-nominated Best Actress, Sandra Houlet, who's starring in the film Anatomy of a Fall in theaters now and available on demand. She also stars in The Zone of Interest, which is nominated for Best Picture and Best International Feature. Uh, Sandra, uh, let's talk about uh, working with Milo Machado Grainer, who plays your son in the film. He's wonderful. And I just share what those scenes were like uh, with the two of you. They're, they're so intimate and so poignant. Oh, he's such a wonderful actor. I mean, and also a wonderful human being, a very mature child or a teenager now. I, I think he was 12 when we shot the film. Um, I love the way that he really knew what he wanted to do. I love the way that he was setting boundaries uh, I love the way that how he went into the scenes and also out of the scenes. He was just a boy when the scene was over doing his thing. I mean, it was a lot of snow. I, I guess he had a lot of fun <laughs> and also doing his homework. And, you know, um, he's very precise in his acting and he has a sort of transparency that you can only, you can see through his face into his mind and I the way that he is carrying the whole emotional weight of the film is astonishing to me uh over and over again when I watch the film he's he's called on to do a lot non-verbally and is very effective in that way yes yes he is he had a great coach also Cynthia Ara who's friends with Justine since their art school times and uh, she was on set every day working with him um, but of course she couldn't have worked with him if nothing would have been there so it's it's his talent and his ability to imagine the feelings of other people which is not everybody has that so. 
uh, in the in the script written by Justine Trier and uh, Arthur Harari, um, the writer is is a German writer, and and part of the whole conflict is that she's uprooted her life. She's moved to the French Alps because her husband wants to go back to the town where where he grew up, and she feels you know out of out of sorts as a result of of that. So that made me wonder whether Trier had you in mind for this or whether the script was written without a particular actor in mind and that was just added, the fact you are German, to this. Um, can you share with us the evolution of that? I mean, that's basically for her to say, or for them to say, but what I know so far is that Justine wanted me to to play a character. She had prepared several projects and uh, threw them away again because she wasn't satisfied and then found this idea and worked on it with Arthur. But it was for, written for me from the beginning. If I wouldn't have accepted, she would have had to find another European actress who is not French, who has this language conflict. Uh, but she she wrote it as a German as a German character. So that was the, the that was the script you read. Was it that way? So clearly, then, yeah, you you were in mind for that. Clearly, yeah. Um, yes, I was, and it's yeah. And that's got to that's I and and of course you're an acclaimed actor, and and you've had many plaudits, but that's got to be for an actor a wonderful feeling to have a director of her skill level um, write something with you specifically in mind. I cannot talk about it. It's crazy, and I will forever be grateful that she did that. Let's talk about your background as an actor. You've done a great deal of work in theater. And share with us the breadth of your career, the variety of different roles that you've played, how how one builds on the other to give you the range of skills that you have to bring to a role uh, like uh, Sandra in in Anatomy of a Fall. Oh, that's a really good question and a difficult one. I don't know if I can answer that. Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's. I think it's for a reason that I played Sandra when I was forty four and not when I was twenty five. I think there are some things that one has experienced in life at a certain age that haven't been there before. So I think. That definitely helped. Um, I mean, the stage acting is a very good training for focus and concentration over a long time. And for especially when you think of the scene in the kitchen, the central argument of the film, of course, that is something that is easier for or has, has felt familiar for me to talk to somebody, to my partner for such a long time because we play evenings of, I don't know, five, six hours sometimes. So it's... Mm. Um, it's, yeah, that's kind of, yeah, that was a good training, I think. And also to think about characters in a certain way, always coming from their inside movements and not so much from what we want to achieve as how we want them to be read by people, but to go from the inside. I think that's, yeah, maybe that's that, but I, 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 my I think yeah, that's sufficient. Yeah, no, that I, I that's great. And before we conclude, I do want to ask you about the zone of interest, Jonathan Glazer's Holocaust uh, drama. You play such a different character there, 
And that's a, it's a very, very hard character to play. And I wonder if you just could share what was the what was the biggest thing with that character that you felt you had to grapple with to to do it in the way you wanted? Well, to me, I think the biggest challenge was because I wasn't used to that, to not connect with her, not trying to understand what's going on or justify any of her actions. I really try to stay away from any sort of connection. And I signed for this project not to portray Hedwig Hess. That really wasn't my intent. I really wanted to work with Jonathan and try to explore, I think, the phenomenon of ignorance. It could have been anybody uh, to me. It was just to find out how this works when these things happen next door. You know about them, but you just don't do anything about it or don't let it affect your life. And I found that really, really interesting and cruel at the same time. It wasn't easy. Yeah, and it sounds like a very demanding experience shooting that film as well. Yes, in one way, but at the same time, you know, when you put it into perspective, because we shot um, on location, we were literally 50 meters from the original Hess house and the walls of the former concentration camp of Auschwitz. So uh, then all these things, if it's hard or not, really don't matter. So. Sandra Yule, thank you so much for joining us and talking about your tremendous performances this year, your Oscar nomination, and working with two gifted directors uh, within the past year or so. Thank you so much for joining us on Film Week. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Sandra Yule joining us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Thank you for joining us. Have a wonderful President's Day weekend. All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.